Yeah, you want to hear something that'll just gross you out? Check out the 2021 stereo mix. You'll just be like, oh, oh my gosh. Just throw your headphones off. Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where lifelong friends, musicians, and fans of music, above all, break down and tell the story behind some of the most influential albums of all time. As described in Robert Dimery's book, 1001 Albums, You Must Hear Before You Die. Now we're going to dive into the backstory. We're going to give you context on where this album came from. We're going to play a bunch of clips and break them down musically, so don't worry if you haven't heard this one in a while. And at the end of this whole thing, we're going to vote on whether you actually need to hear this record before you die. My name is Rob, and I love, 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 love multi-track recording, but not as much as these fellas do. Today, (laughs) we are talking about The Beach Boys and the album The Beach Boys Today with an exclamation point. Very excited to get into it. A quick warning to the Beach Boys stands out there. We have all made music. We've written and produced our own records. We know how hard it is. We respect anyone who puts pen to paper or voice to tape in this case. But it's also fun to make a little fun and to nitpick even the things we love the most. So fair warning, we're going to be poking a little fun at this band and this record. Let's quickly start things off by playing a clip from the opening song from the Beach Boys today. So you get a little taste of what we've been listening to. It's called, Do You Wanna Dance? Do you wanna dance and hold my hand? Tell me baby I'm your loving man, oh baby. Okay, and now that you have a sense of who the Beach Boys are and what they approximately sound like, let's get into it. Let's let's introduce who's on the call today to talk Beach Boys with a quick tweet-length review. So we're going to go around the room here, and I'd like to throw it first to Adam. All right, so we had our 2023 clip episode, and unfortunately, I think I'm falling back into a trope of our tweets, which is food. But, all right, here we go. Here's my 2024 first food tweet. Cabbage. Arguably a very healthy food. There's a chemical in cabbage, which, if taken in high enough quantities, can kill you. It's cyanide. Cabbage contains cyanide. Similarly, the Beach Boys contain harmonies, arguably a healthy part of a musical diet. But even harmonies, when consumed in such large quantities, can kill you. (laughs) What? (laughs) Blasphemy, Adam. How dare you? I meant blasphemy against yourself, your own, your own scripture. Yes, exactly. My own love of harmony, yes. 
Okay, let's keep it going here, and let's go to Phil next. I've got something maybe equally blasphemous. Yeah, my feelings are sort of summed up, uh, hidden behind lush four-part harmonies, pre-white album production aesthetics, equally juvenile lyricism, and notions of love. Wilson and the Beach Boys prove that songs about casual sex and booty calls have always and will always rule the airwaves. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well done. And we're going to throw it next to Tom. I am unfortunately also going to fall into another oft-used trope by delivering our tweet-length review in the form of a 1930s radio announcer. <laughs> Beach Boys, more like Beach Noise. America's most subversive rock and roll outfit returns with another album full of sharp edges and hot social takes, proving once again that California is nothing but a breeding ground for commie subversion. Parents, be warned. This music will turn your darling kids into dead-eyed hippie reefer addicts, not for the faint of heart. (laughs) Nice. Tom, you win. You win 2024. Just pack it in, gents. Let's shut, shut down the recording. Going on the clip show. Bookmark that audio engineer okay Uh, and i'm rob and i'm gonna finish things out here with a tweet and mine is pretty simple it says if you were wondering why british rock music felt the need to invade america look no further than the barbershop stylings of these wholesome lads run amok with a (laughs) multi-track oh poor beach boys Okay, listen, we're going to get deep into the Beach Boys. I did a heck of a lot of research this week. I'm excited to relay it to you. And we're going to talk specifically about the origin of the Beach Boys and kind of their story up to this point. The story, as we probably all know, continues continues beyond this album into their most famous record, Pet Sounds, which is also on the list. We're not really we're not going to talk about that today. But I thought you were going to say Kokomo. And on into Coke. Yeah, the Beach Boys are still touring today, guys. You could probably see them at your local rec center. Kokomo's not on the list, is it? No, it is not. Kokomo's not on the list. Just making sure. At your local rec center. But I I will, however, note, though, the number one selling Beach Boys single of all time is Kokomo. Yes, no, I and I heard many times because there is an interband fight we're going to get into of like who is the real genius, Brian Wilson, who started the group, is often considered the primary creative force, and we'll we'll see why today. But his the guy who carries on the legacy of the Beach Boys today, Mike Love, wrote Kokomo, and he mentioned in several interviews that Kokomo was the best selling record, <laughs> and that Brian Wilson had nothing to do with it. So take that for what it's worth. <laughs> Does Mike Love also wear a MAGA hat to his shows now, I believe? <laughs> oh, did he switched out the hat that said Beach Boys? Like he's at the Beach Boys concert wearing the Beach Boys hat? Sure. I'm pretty sure he wears a, a MAGA hat. <laughs> Is it in the Beach Boys font? Like the bubble Beach Boys <laughs> Now font? that would be great. That I'd be, accept that. Would be that. Great. That's pretty good. What does Stamos have to say about that? You know Stamos plays drums with them like consistently. Really? really? Like since the 80s, yeah. Wow. He he abandoned Jesse and the Rippers for them? Come on. If every word I said could make you laugh. I want to hear what your general impressions uh, were of this week. Let's go a little deeper on that. Let's go to Tom first. You know, this came off like a lot of fluff, I got to say. I was not super familiar with the timeline of the Beach Boys And finding out that Brian Wilson had suffered a nervous breakdown before the recording of this album, I was hoping that there was going to be some more pathos on it. 
and there really was not. It is remarkably wholesome, and yes, Phil, you are right. There are songs about casual sex, and I kept hearing "Fuck Me, Rhonda" in that song. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, we can. We'll, we'll talk about that. It's it's uh, it's it's poorly done. You yeah. know, it's the lyricism. It's <laughs> yeah, but like the instrumentation, I think is really great, and you can tell that you know they were trying to get away from that canned rock and roll sound by doing different song formats and doing different instruments and not just rock, you know, bass, drums, guitar. And that's all really cool. But the fact that they slathered everything in that Beach Boys harmony made it sound samey in a way that I think did a disservice to the instrumentation and to the way that they were trying to alter that song structure. I can see how they got the pet sounds from this, but they're not there yet that's really funny i had a note that this was pet sounds jr Mm, which is you can hear the building blocks you can hear the fundamentals hear the building blocks great way to put it of what will what will soon come and i was also floored that they stopped recording this six months before they started recording pet sounds so very I don't know if there's a huge jump in the songwriting or the maturity or just the way they put the songs and the production together, but it, and maybe it wasn't astounding that there was only six months in between. Because again, I can hear a lot of what is coming. You know, yeah, it's it's weird. It's almost like all the tricks are there. They just don't quite know how to use them. Definitely something with the production, like the instrumentation, pet sounds. Yeah. But they also have another album that they put out between this album and Pet Sounds. Yeah. They were workhorses. Oh, are you serious? Oh, my God. Things were moving so fast back then. (laughs) Holy crap. Both in terms of the cultural change month over month, but I think personal change. These guys are young men. We're going to get into that, like the things that were happening in the culture and in their own lives. And then also, yeah, all it seemed like all of popular artists at the time were workhorses where they had to put out three records a year consistently. Dude, between 1962 and 1965, they put out 10 albums. Jesus. 10 albums, one of which is Pet Sounds. All right, that's crazy. Oh, no, sorry. Pet Sounds was 66. My bad. Pet Sounds was 66. It's okay. Point taken still. <laughs> <laughs> so here's where I'm at. I, I actually agree most with Adam's tweet that they, this has so many building blocks of what I would like, but I still couldn't quite bring myself to enjoy it. Now, I should say over the week, I got, it grew on me. And the more I researched, I felt better and better about it, especially the back half of the record. The first half of the record is pop fluff for the for the most part. I think the back half of the record is a lot closer to what we get on Pet Sounds. There is just something so weirdly non-threatening about these guys' approach their voices, the production. It's just like a little too wholesome for me. It doesn't have any, it has yeah. zero rock and roll edge almost. The kind of guys you want to marry your daughter, you know? Like if, if Brian Wilson shows up to pick up my daughter for a date, I'd be like, oh, this is fantastic. Here's 20 bucks. Go get yourself some burgers or something. We're going to come back to that. <laughs> I know. It's not the reality. Yes. Yeah. Oh, right. yeah. <laughs> We're going to come back to that one because the other thing I got from this research, sadly, I appreciated the music more. But I learned the more I learned about these people's personalities, they were not and they were probably damaged, as we're going to see from their upbringing and from stardom, which is mentally damaging to everybody. But they have not been the best human beings to each other or to other people in the world. And I found that pretty consistently. This band is marked by pretty much constant infighting, sniping, 
lawsuits over the years and a lot of questionable romantic decisions as well which we're we're going to get into. It also sounds like the Wilson dad was a huge asshole, right? <laughs> yes, Murray Wilson was an abusive drunk at a high level. Uh so okay, so this is a good segue. <laughs> He's the top of this game. He's at the top the, of this game. He's a drunk abusive for you. <laughs> 10 out of 10. <laughs> I just want to point out before so no one thinks we're going to crap all over this record. I think there's a lot to like here as well and I do think you can still hear the influence of a lot of this material. In modern bands, I thought of Jeff the Brotherhood or even Kurt Vile or 70s bands like the Ramones. And I understand that they were also referencing Phil Spector, which Brian Wilson is definitely referencing and revering on this record. Another stand-up guy. I think there's some good stuff here. Yeah, there's something about being in the studio that much <laughs> that might make you insane. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> it's already come up, right? Like, there's a Beach Boys-ness, and it's all over this record, and it's all over Pet Sounds, and it's all over some of their earlier hits, and yep. bands bands pick it up like a style and try it on sometimes, you know? It can't be an easy one to try on, because part of the Beach Boys-ness is just destroy harmony that moves <laughs> yeah, yeah. all over the place with yeah, these great yeah, melodies. Yeah, it's, four, you know. four notes at all times, bare minimum. Yes. And not overdubbed in most cases. This is mostly being performed all at once because they didn't have that many overdub capabilities at that time. You know, they were dealing with three track tape or possibly four track tape. They had to record the band and then bounce it. Anyway, so it, it's impressive, objectively impressive. Let's tell a little bit of the backstory and y'all could continue to chime in with your thoughts on this as well as your thoughts on the record. So here's what I got here. The Beach Boys is the story of America and specifically of the Golden West Coast of Southern California, all full of promise and sunshine, and then packaged and sold to every kid who ever dreamt of the ocean. It's a family of brothers and a cousin and a close friend eventually learning to despise each other. So the Wilson family grew up in a place called Hawthorne, California. It's a suburb south of Los Angeles. There's Brian, the oldest brother, there's Dennis, the middle brother, a.k.a. the fuck-up. And then there's Carl, the youngest. <laughs> and their first cousin is a guy called Mike Love. First cousin, grows up with them, and he's also in the band. And ultimately rounding out this band is their friend, a guy called Al Jardine. So let's just break down the instruments they play, although they do kind of switch around a bit. Everyone in this band sings. And from their inception in during high school, to up to this record and beyond it's it's these uh, how many guys is it six guys one two three four i see five on the cover of beach boys today so i don't know there's five guys <laughs> there's five guys right five cable knit sweaters okay so <laughs> al al jardine plays bass on most of the recordings though weirdly every clip i see shows brian with a bass on stage I don't yeah. quite know why that is. He does play a lot of records. But one thing I wanted to point out, just because we mentioned it on a recent episode, that Brian is also the falsetto voice on all these recordings. So going in direct opposition to the bass player having the lowest the voice. Bass. But okay, yeah. Al Hardeen is listed as the bass player on some of these records. More like Eagles. Bass player is the high voice. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So it's got to be one end of the spectrum or the other. Dennis Wilson is, is the guy who plays drums. Carl Wilson and Mike Love both play guitar, and Brian plays a lot of things, as we're going to see, but often piano, sometimes guitar, sometimes harpsichord, random things like that, right? And 
first things first, I wanted to mention that like a lot of bands of this era, they don't play on a lot of their recordings from this period. The Wrecking Crew is actually all over this album. They always sing on the recordings, but they don't always play. I made a connection at a point during this week, which was that, oh, that's why everybody has to sing on every track. Because otherwise, they're not doing shit on some of these songs, you know? It's like, they're, what, what am I contributing to this? We got Carol Kay on bass, you know? We got the Wrecking Crew filling out all the sounds. I have to contribute something. something How about we just throw yeah. another voice in there? Yeah, that's going to be, I'm just going to be in the background <laughs> doing some weird counter melody thing, you know, like, she knows me or something like that, which it, it led to some busyness in the backgrounds that I found to be not very palatable over the course of the week. I, I think we'll find on the first song, it's it's particularly sus. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a double meeting there, huh? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of, lot of chord extensions in these harmonies. Okay, so Brian Wilson, right? He is generally regarded as the mastermind behind the group. He was musical from an early age. His father mentioned that he remembers him mimicking back his own little bits of singing in a note-perfect way even before he could talk. And all the kids showed some talent, but Brian was the oldest and kind of the ringleader, right? So naturally, with such talented kids, it makes sense that you'd fly into abusive rages frequently and hit your (laughs) son Brian so hard in the side of the head when he was six as to make him permanently deaf in one year. Wow. Holy shit. I have to imagine that Brian is somewhere on the spectrum, too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. The description of... Oh, even before he could talk, he could sing, but he can't be a normal human being. It's like, okay, that's probably... Yeah, right, right. There's something going on there. And he struggled a lot, very publicly, with with mental health over the years. It kind of starts right around this period, as I think was already alluded to. And so I I don't want to make too much light of that. But I did watch a Beach Boys documentary that was filmed in the 70s, and they're interviewing all the Beach Boys, and they're all kind of bearded and looking 70s, you know, shaggy. And Brian is being interviewed in his bed with the covers pulled up all the way to his neck and like not acknowledging at all you know but that's his whole interview this is normal right uh maybe he was just hoping for world peace you know he's doing a lie-in for world peace (laughs) so their father murray wilson was an abusive drunk and the boys growing up found out that music was the best way to avoid their dad's tantrums. See, the thing is that Murray Wilson was, he loved music as well. And in fact, he was a failed songwriter and arranger himself. And so he sought to live his rock and roll dreams vicariously through his kids. It's always a great plan, guys. Very healthy, yes. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. But look, this is the 1950s. It's a wholesome time for America. And I do think context is really important for this record, both both cultural and musical. So a young Brian heads off to high school in Southern California where he is the quarterback of the high school football team. I just, I found that fact insane. Oh, okay. And, you know, yeah. it's, a, it's a fruitful wait, time. Wait, wait, can you repeat that? <laughs> Brian Wilson was the quarterback of his high school football team. <laughs> so he's just was been... it a musical high school and he just happened to be the tallest or something or like a performing arts school <laughs> right exactly yeah. right. so you're telling me that he has just been 
ripping through the ladies since he was like 14 years old. He's just been the coolest and the most popular and sought after boy. That's fucking annoying. <laughs> I assume it was a very white and kind of upper class high school where maybe there wasn't as much competition. Yeah, fair enough. When they played the inner city schools, they were just getting shut out 77 to zero. <laughs> Look, he's also a, he's kind of a hefty guy. That might have, that must have been part of pushing him towards football, right? He's a little bit of a chunky dude, or he was back then. But he's going through his life in the early 1950s, and these are this is the era of early rock and roll, right? A lot of cool stuff is happening. Chuck Berry, Bill Haley and the Comets, Little Richard, and then one day on the radio, it's a lightning strike. What does he hear? The Four Freshmen. It's got harmony. It's got dorky white guys in cable knit sweaters. It's got everything Brian has ever wanted in music. So we're gonna we will play a clip of that momentarily, but this group, the four freshmen, which is basically like a barbershop quartet or a doo-op group, if you will. Uh, is inspires Brian to start his first vocal group. He enlists Mike Love, his cousin, this guy he grew up with, and his brothers who are younger than him and pretty much forces them, whether they want to or not, to sing with him. And right off the bat, he insists on taking on extremely challenging arrangements. In fact, the very first time they sang together, they attempted the four freshmen's It's a Blue World. Now, apparently the first time they trotted this out, it completely crashed and burned, unsurprisingly. It's very challenging, but this was no deterrent. So let's just play a clip from the four freshmen's It's a Blue World. Just so our audience knows, when we do the episodes, whoever's hosting sends out a the focus list, and this song was on the focus list. And a minute after listening to it, I wrote back to the group and said, this is probably one of the most beautiful vocal arrangements I've ever heard in my life. So I understand <laughs> yeah. why they were obsessed with this. I feel like trying to sing this song, if you've never sang in a vocal group before... <laughs> Would be like <laughs> trying to do synchronized swimming with other people and none of you could swim. <laughs> like something of this level, right? Like this is so yes. insane. Yeah. Everybody just jumps in the pool yeah, yeah. and is flailing around and they're, they're like, like, why isn't got, this working? I'll be on the left. So I think I got right. it. <laughs> Honestly, I was a little taken aback by this song actually had more edge than a lot of the songs on Beach Boys today did. <laughs> That's the it had thing. more pathos. Yeah, these totally. guys sound like they f. The Beach Boys yeah. just sound right. like boys. <laughs> yeah. And this is actually a compliment to them that Beach Boys is a great name for them for that reason. They really sound boyish in just so yeah. many ways. And it's it was that was funny to me too, Tom. I'm glad you mentioned that. By the way, the four freshmen are still touring. 
Lord, like seventy the nursing years home circuit after. is that a thing? <laughs> no, no. I think all the original members have swapped out for young younger bucks. But I know I did notice they're they're keeping the tradition alive. They're going to be at the first Presbyterian Church at Bonita Springs in Florida <laughs> in March. So a nursing home circuit. That's essentially what you're so, talking about. So go check them out. Uh, I also read hey, that man, pays uh, the bills. I totally processed that as first Unitarian Church. I was like, whoa. In oh, Philly? yeah, the, the Philly yeah, venue right. that like, yeah. actually gets good bands. I yeah. just assume Unitarian churches are all, you know, different. Super hip. Yeah, yeah. super hip, yeah. <laughs> so I, I read a little note about these guys that they they started in the 40s as a barbershop outfit in Indiana, and they eventually got on the radar of some, like, some jazz guys like Dizzy Gillespie and Stan Kenton who helped them get a deal with Capitol. They were dropped from Capitol when they submitted the song, It's a Blue World. And Capitol's like, nah, this is terrible. We're not releasing this. And they ended up getting dropped from the label, getting the song back, promoting it themselves, and it became their first charting single in 1952, which is where Brian heard it on the radio. They didn't even have boater hats on or anything, you know? Like, <laughs> straying from that barbershop aesthetic? Come on. <laughs> okay. So... They're in this singing group. It's up and down. The brothers are at sort of different levels of commitment to the band through high school. And then Brian goes off to college locally in Southern California and starts searching around for topics to write songs about. Spoiler alert, this search proved very, very successful. He noticed one day that his younger brother Dennis was constantly talking about this new trend that had him getting up early in the morning, hanging out all day on the beach, and using crazy slang terms like cowabunga, which is actually something people said, not just the Ninja Turtle catchphrase. Now, of course, I'm talking about surfing. And at the time, surfing was still a fairly niche hobby for SoCal hipsters. And I wanted to take just a very brief tangent into the history of surfing. And if you guys know more, please let me know. But it seems as though there's versions of surfing that cropped up independently hundreds of years ago in a, in a few different places in the world. But most agree that modern surfing originated in Hawaii around 1600 years ago. And it mostly stayed with Polynesians until around the turn of the century when a land baron named Henry Huntington decided to actively import it to California as a marketing technique for some of his properties along along the beach so he literally paid surfers to come surf waves so that tourists would would see it would roll up to his property and and think it was cool wow uh, but in any case it didn't really become cool for working class white kids to do it until right around this time it was just starting to take off as a hobby for for young people in southern california young working class white kids and so dennis the younger, or the middle brother, rather, was super into surfing. He couldn't stop blathering about it to his brothers, and he kept missing singing practice for it. And so Brian has this light bulb moment, decides to start writing songs about it. Now, the very first Beach Boys single is simply called Surfin'. They recorded in a budget studio together. And as soon as Daddy Murray Wilson hears the song, he declares himself the Beach Boys manager, in parentheses for life, <laughs> That leads us straight to our favorite segment here on the show. It's Beach Boys by the Numbers. So they record surfing. The first number I want to throw out to you is 50,000. That's the number of copies. Their very first single sold. Off the strength of that, Murray, the dad, is able to help get them a deal at Capitol Records. Wow. Now that had to have been 
just around California, right? Like, or, no, or, was, or were they actually shipping them out across the country? I believe they were shipping them out across the country. That's the only way you could wow. sell that many. I feel like. Yeah. Okay. I think right, we. Right. I think they hit. They hit right at the crest of the wave, pun intended, of when America <laughs> w- knew about surfing. And but didn't know enough about it. They needed information about it, and these songs I think started coming in fast <laughs> and hot. Have you, have you guys just like well, I just I just listened to Surfing. Are you guys familiar with this song? I've heard it. Yeah, you could change Surfing out with Pooping. It sounds like children's music. <laughs> you could swap it out with Pooping, and you've you've got a whole children's thing here, man. Yeah, how this old is- are they when they put that out? Eleven. <laughs> I think I think Brian is probably like twenty one or twenty two, but that puts his youngest brother at something like eighteen or seventeen. Yeah. Imagine this, right? Brian Wilson is on the football field. He pops off his football helmet. His long locks of hair flow out, <laughs> and he just starts singing his his high falsetto about surfing. Oh, <laughs> okay. So speaking speaking of surfing. The next number I want to throw out to you guys is 12. That's the number of songs with the word surf in the title that the Beach Boys put out as singles. <laughs> Shut I, up. I have a list for you. Surfing, Surfer's <laughs> Rule, Surfing Safari, Surfing USA, Little Surfer Girl, Noble Surfer, The Surfer Moon, Rockin' Surfer, <laughs> South Bay Surfer, Surf Jam, Surf's Up, and Still Surfing. Oh I guess it's still surfing is like 2019 or something like yeah, that. That was, like, that was well, later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was later. But listen, and I haven't even included the songs that are most definitely about surfing that just don't happen to have the word <laughs> surf directly in the title, like Catch a Wave, The Warmth of the Sun, or Girls on the Beach. The list goes on, fellas. <laughs> this this was a gold mine. okay? Damn. Lord. It's like in the '90s, you you write a song about rollerblading or something like that. It just happens to hit right at the right time, and you're still like, you know, let's rollerblade again, like we did last summer, 20 years later. So the next number, and it 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 purposely comes on the heels of that last little piece. The next number is the number one, as in, of all the members of the Beach Boys, there's only one who ever surfed. Save for Dennis, none of the Beach Boys surf in any way shape or form and 90 percent of their career is built around it exactly that is fantastic that's got to be so disappointing you're like on vacation in hawaii and you run into one of you run into one of the beach boys you're like yeah man let's go catch a wave we'll be sitting on top of the world like actually it's not really my thing i uh (laughs) yeah i've never really gotten up you know it's it's kind of challenging i don't really want to put in the time yeah yeah dennis is the only one so uh very very interesting but Okay, for the last number, though, to, to round out this segment, I'm sure you know that uh, even though this Beach Boys album comes a bit before Brian Wilson's very public struggles with mental health, couldn't help but bring up a couple strange Brian Wilson anecdotes here. So the last number I want to throw out there is four, as in four hours. This is the amount of time that Brian Wilson would reportedly sit in his living room by himself listening to a self-made tape loop of the Ronettes' Be My Baby chorus. Not even the song. Just the chorus. Just the chorus. Now, you do that for four hours straight at high volume. And I calculated it. The chorus is all of 14 seconds. That's over a thousand loops of the chorus. If that's what it takes to write pet sounds, I'm not writing pet sounds. (laughs) That's 
pretty messed up. See, something's going on. Something's Had definitely some going on. He was obsessed with Phil Spector. We see that, I think, a little bit on the Beach Boys today. Phil Spector's the guy who produced the song Be My Baby. It is a great song, mm-hmm. by the way. It's a great example of Phil Spector's wall of sound approach. But that is overkill by anyone's measure. And speaking of filling your ears with utter nonsense for hours and hours for the sake of trance-like enjoyment, we love you, dear listeners, and we love doing this show. (laughs) We learn so much and are gaining new appreciation all the time, and that's 100% because of you. So thank you. To help keep us motivated to dig deeper and deeper, support us however you can by listening, by sharing with a friend, giving us a five-star rating, or even better, grabbing some of our merch or joining the Patreon page and effectively buying us a beer. All this stuff is linked in the show notes and we love you for it. We reinvest every cent back into the making, just making the show bigger and better for you. Okay, back to Southern California for a moment. This is the early 60s. America was simpler then. The Beach Boys start pumping out surf-related hits and touring very successfully. Now, in a pre-Beatles, pre-60s cultural revolution America, they are legitimately the biggest band in the U.S. They expand from surfing to songs about cars every once in a while. These (laughs) wholesome lads have tapped into something in the American youth consciousness. Hit after hit. Surfing comes out in 1961 in charts. In 1962, they have three more charting singles. In 63, it's seven charting singles. And by 64, it's 10 charting singles, including their first number one hit, which is called I Get Around, which is a great song. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I I had a tape growing up that was just the best of the Beach Boys. And it was six tracks on each side of the cassette. And they were all killers. I mean, they're all, you know, fun pop songs, but they all crushed. No doubt. That's why I say the timing, I think, is really important because we're we're pre-Beatles landing in America. That's a pretty big event. Yeah, right, you know, right. It was just a really different time. I think so much happened kind of in the mid to late 60s, culturally even, let alone musically, that it is a little hard to fathom why how this was the most popular stuff in America, but it was. It's also the rise of the American teenager in the like early to mid 60s like teenagers as a concept was not that old it used to just be like well you graduated from eighth grade go get a job (laughs) and then in the kind of post world war ii baby boom era teenagers was labeled as this period of life where you get to have new experiences and you have less responsibilities and you can kind of explore yourself. And so, you know, you talk about 1945, the war ends. These babies are becoming teenagers in the late 40s, early 50s. uh, I'm sorry, the late uh, 50s, early 60s. And there's also not not only a new market to sell to, but there is a new attitude about what those people should be doing. It's not go get a job at the coal mine. It's go surf and have fun. Get a car, ride around, be true to your girl and all that stuff. And they really tapped into the zeitgeist very well. Yeah, and in addition to that, it's also the rise of mass-produced media. Television is still pretty new. The recording industry is still pretty new. And it's rapid, both are rapidly expanding as a as a way to get those kinds of messages that Tom just mentioned out to the public and to reinforce them. 
right? And and like you said, a new a new group to consume that media. Okay, so back to the story. In the lead up to the release of today, or the Beach Boys today as it's known, they're touring a lot. They're touring in Europe. They're touring in America. They're recording and releasing kind of in between on tour stops, basically, more singles through 1964 and releasing them as singles. And these include a couple of the tracks that end up on this album, meaning they were released before the album came out. Brian is already having some mental health issues, and I think it's partly the boost of success that they get from I Get Around that leads him to one of the first of many of his nervous breakdowns, where he basically decides not to tour with the group anymore or at least very rarely. And at first, Glenn Campbell fills in, the rhinestone cowboy himself, I believe came up on a recent episode. <laughs> yeah. And later, at some point, they get a lookalike to tour with them consistently, and <laughs> no one really notices <laughs> no because way. Wow. we're in that wow. era of America. So, side note, some of Brian's anxiety is really a crazed jealousy about being on the road while his first wife, Marilyn, is at home. And so in an effort to calm his nerves, they get married quite impulsively at the end of 1964, which is really right in the middle of the recording sessions for this, this album, right smack in the middle. When they get married, she's 16 years old. He's 22. And by the way, he met her when she was 14. Yikes. Ooh, yeah. This is getting less and less wholesome as we go down. We're yeah. Gonna, yeah, we're going to cover this in the first song on the playlist. <laughs> so... <laughs> But look, the story does have a reasonably happy ending. They actually stayed together for something like 15 years. Until she was like 29? Okay. <laughs> just just for the benefit of our, our young but not too young listeners, this is the marriage that produced Carney and Wendy Wilson later to form the group Wilson Phillips and have that banger of a hit, Hold On. How did I not know that? We're too focused on the Phillips part of that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I feel like I kind of didn't that. know that too, yeah. <laughs> It is really interesting, though, Rob, right? Like, if you look at their studio album chronology, you got Surfing Safari, Surfing USA, Surfer Girl, Deuce Coop, you know, something you know, all summer long. They put out a Christmas record, which is great, by the way. Uh, I actually got it this year for Christmas. It's fabulous. Uh, but, like, wholesome as could be. And then as soon as they get married, this other vibe creeps in. <laughs> Right. right, like instantly. It's called regret, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> so pretty much right after that marriage, they head back into the studio to finish up this record. And there is a lot happening, like you said, Phil. It's the marriage, but also America's changing. These clean-cut California kids are changing with the fame. Brian's recently been introduced to, gasp, marijuana. And musically, the landscape has shifted under their feet because, as we know, in 1964, four lads from Liverpool drop onto America and make somewhat of a splash. So, <laughs> Brian hears the Beatles and, of course, admires them and sees the competition and wants to expand the songwriting palette, understandably, and also the instruments he's using in order to keep up. So, now here we are kind of at the cusp of the Beach Boys today, half of which sounds pretty much exactly like all the surf pop tunes. But the other half is starting to sound a lot more progressive and interesting and heading in the direction of their masterpiece, Pet Sounds. And what do we mean by that? Well, the songs here, I think, are both a departure from their departure, both in terms of subject matter, where Wilson is writing a little more autobiographically and positioning himself as sort of a neurotic, unreliable narrator, which seems pretty close to his real self. 
but also because the arrangements are getting much grander. No tracks on this entire record rely solely on what you might call standard rock band instrumentation, like guitar, bass, drums. They all have touches of orchestral stuff or mm-hmm. other instruments outside the rock world. And of course, the vocal arrangements are getting more lush. There's more nine chords, seven chords, and extensions beyond that, which we're going to touch on. So here we are at the recording of the Beach Boys today. Like I said, they had done a couple singles on the road kind of over the summer of 1964, but a lot, the bulk of the record was recorded between January 7th and January 19th in 1965, mostly in LA at a place called Western Studio, although they also stopped by a place called Gold Star Studio. And this must have been back in 1964. They actually did one of the songs, Dance, 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 at a studio in Nashville. Now, we've already brought his name up a couple times, but apart from the Beatles, Brian was also obsessed with Phil Spector. And so for a long time had been using the session musicians that Phil Spector would use at a lot of his sessions. People like Hal Blaine, Carol Kay, Leon Russell, they're on this recording, and they're also known as the Wrecking Crew. Which I think at that time, that name even was still like a relatively new name for them. I, I think, you know, it had been, the Wrecking Crew was a loose affiliation of studio musicians who kind of got that name over time. It w- wasn't referring to a, one specific band exactly, but I think the Wrecking Crew name might not have even been spoken at this point. I'm not sure, though. Did they work with the Carpenters, speaking of really clean-cut <laughs> harmonies and uh, inoffensive music? Because I feel like I remember Hal Blaine coming up. Yeah, they did. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, they did. I think they were kind of the the guys in L.A. The go tos. Yeah, yeah, the guys and gals, right? And so I think they would just they would just became the L.A. group of killers that various studios. This is my understanding, which is limited. Would call in for their sessions, and then I think over time they kind of gained this name as a as this loose affiliation, this cadre of musicians. So well, but they also had that reputation of. We'll record your album in a day. You come in, and we're going to bust out 12 tracks in one day that we've never heard before because they are consummate pros. And it must have been a switch because my understanding is that they spent a lot of time on these tracks. They were spending weeks on individual tracks as opposed to a day on an album. type. So you bring up a good point, which is I think the use of studio musicians, which sounds a little bit alien to us now the idea that a band which is touring and playing their own music live every night would not be the band that records the songs in the studio seems a little weird but it was done mostly for efficiency purposes like you're saying tom like how's what's the fastest cheapest way we can get this done the professionals are going to be better at it which they almost certainly were but that said two things one the beach boys do play on a handful of these tracks which makes sense they would have taken a bit longer to get those band tracks down. But I think where a lot of the time was spent was in the post-production, was in the arrangement of vocals and the rearrangement of vocals and the takes of vocals, and then all the other stuff they added, the timpani and the timbales and the wood blocks and... That weird harpsichord-sounding thing, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, and one of the reasons Brian Wilson said he wanted to stop touring, I think he was having a lot of anxiety and stage fright from traveling, like we said, but his... His other reason was to focus full-time on the thing he actually liked, which was to write and produce music. So he really was starting to take control at this point. 
And it's interesting because another thing that they were always struggling with, I mentioned their dad, their abusive, controlling father, who also helped them get their first record deal, I should say, and clearly shepherded them through some of this. They had pushed him out as manager at this point, and yet he was still hanging around and exerting a lot of influence. And there's some like tapes of, I think it's during the Help Me Rhonda sessions where Brian and the dad are arguing back and forth like during the take. And the dad is just, he's a real dick. I mean, he's just like questioning everything Brian does and like how he's doing it. And he exerted a lot of psychological control over the band, even though he wasn't still the manager, right? That sounds really shitty. And also, objectively, as an observer, you'd think he'd turn around and go to his dad like, do you have any number one hits? No? Shut the fuck up. All right? I'm, I'm the guy writing the music here. But it's your dad. You can't probably you know right. well psychologically positioned to do that i was just about to say like, you don't have a dad yeah i know i got a dad and i yeah i, I shut my mouth a lot <laughs> so it's funny it's funny you mentioned the, that aspect because there was another anecdote about how when after the band officially pushed murray out as the manager he immediately runs out and signs a spite band called the Sunrays. And then dresses them exactly like his sons, the Beach Boys, in an attempt no to repeat way. this success. Yeah, his son spelled S O N. That's a religious one. It should oh, be. Man. It should be. Rob, I have a question around the recording process here, and I don't know if you have a good answer to this. I was looking up the top albums of 1965, and. I'm seeing that, like, the Who's My Generation is on that list. Bringing It All Back Home, Highway 61 Revisited, Rubber Soul. Was Brian Wilson feeling pressure to mature the subject matter and to mature the lyrics at all to keep up with some of this more worldly material that was coming out? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in regards to the Beatles. But I'm sure he was aware of those other things that were happening in the culture and in the music as well. And I think, but I think he was kind of at dual purposes. He wanted to retain this sense of orchestral grandeur, this Phil Spector wall of sound. How do I use the studio as an instrument? How do I maximize? I'll give you an example. Like I happened upon the Wikipedia article for multi-track recording this week and the beach boys are featured prominently in the history cited in that article as are the beatles right they're kind of they were both trying to push the limits of what was possible so i think that simultaneously brian cared about subject matter competition but maybe even more so he cared about what the beatles were doing in the studio with with the studio things that a live band could not do hmm. interesting so this album sees him doing things like doubling up bass parts, tripling up keyboard parts to make everything richer. There's something like 11 total musicians per song. You know, there's takes going into the 30s. I think it was, he was demanding more perfection and he was sort of adding more. And I do think the chord extensions got more complex here. One of the more interesting things going on is when you start to break these songs down, they have simple underlying chord progressions. They have simple melodies. But how the harmonies are built is can be quite strange. There's some like sharp yeah. 11s and there's some really weird stuff going on that I imagine felt subversive, at least to him at the time. 
for people who are maybe not super familiar with harmonic theory, we want to talk a little bit about like how chords are constructed. Usually like the chord that you think of is a root, a third, and a fifth. And that's, it's a three note chord. There's a lot of most of the three stooges. Hello, hello, hello. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) When you start getting into these extensions of chords and flatting fives and, you know, sharp nines and all that stuff, that's where it gets to be these weird, super lush sounds. Like you hear a C chord and you're like, that's a C chord. And you hear like, you know, a, a C sharp 11 and you're like, that's a different chord than I, then it sounds the same, but there's just a weird flavor on it that makes it sound a lot different. Uh, I think flavor is a really great word to use. I think those extensions really are sort of, especially when they get, the higher you get, right? That's the, they put a weird polish on the sound. Um, also in this case, Tom, and I'm sure, you know, you hear it all over this right there's this intense use of the major seven right which is the you know the the major chord with that fourth note added on the end and also the minor sixth chord minor chord right with that uh, with it the one note added just above it right and it's like the prevalence of these two chords just creates a whole vibe you say it's like the beach boys sound it really does it's their, yeah total 100 yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah yeah, it's it's what defines their sound, and these ideas are also we should say borrowed from classical music, orchestral music, which uses a lot of instruments stacked on top of each other, playing these distinct notes, right, to create these more complex harmonies. And then it's also influenced by jazz harmony. You know, jazz was the other area of music where they're using these kinds of chords and these kinds of harmonic ideas. So bringing them into pop music, which I think the the Beach Boys did, especially vocally, but also bands like the Beatles did in a lot of their music, helped expand the palette of what was possible in pop music. But since we're talking about those chord extensions, I actually think this is a great segue to start talking about some of these songs. The first song I'm going to play is called When I Grow Up, to be a man. And before I play the clip, I'm going to play the opening clip, but I just wanted to point out, I did watch a breakdown of just these opening harmonies, which are quite complicated, and the first chord it lands on vocally is a flat 7-9 sharp 11 chord. Oh my God. And you, you don't need to know what that is, but you can just trust me that that's a weird hear it. Yeah. freaking chord. So it signals right away that you're kind of not in a standard pop song, but it is a bit subtle. So let's play that. When I grow up to be a man Will I dig the same things that turned me on as a kid? Will I look back and say that I wish I hadn't done what I did? This is probably my favorite track on the album. I love how you mentioned at the top that they started playing with the structure of songs. And this has a really weird thing where like the first two seconds is them, I guess that's the chorus, but they're like introducing the song and then they get into the song. And the intro is this really weird harmony you just talked about. So this one, 
I remember this from that 12-track best of cassette that I had, but I hadn't heard it in so long. And yeah, it's just a wild tune. That device of starting on the chorus or the hook line, it it's effective, but it felt like it dated it to that era. I feel like this is more of a thing that happened. You don't hear that in modern music these days where people start with the chorus. I will preface everything I'm going to say by saying that as someone who has yet to grow up and be a man, I'm probably not super well positioned to judge this song. <laughs> then none of us are. <laughs> you know, I liked the song, but I felt like the instrumentation choice felt a little forced, like they were shoehorning in a whole bunch of stuff. It's like, you ever be cooking and you're making something and you're like, this isn't quite right. Let me throw in a little, you know, cumin. Oh, that's not quite right. I'll throw in a little sriracha paste and see if that's good. Oh, that's not quite right. I'll put some more garlic in. It felt like they were kind of doing a little kitchen sink instrumentation okay. on this one. Like I didn't need the harmonica. I don't, that seemed a little forced to me and I hate the harpsichord. They, they love harmonica a little too much. Yeah. I think. It's, yeah. 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 I It's a little, it's a little much. I, yeah. Honestly, this, this one guys for me, I hear what you're saying about the music. I, this is the one where I just struggled with the lyrics. He's talking about being like turned on as a kid. Then yeah. he's talking about like what's he digs in a 14 year old girl. 14, I'm like, 15. Yeah, I'm like, I yeah. The counting was a little yeah. corny. Yeah. All right, I'll give you that. All right. Creepy. I saw yeah. some yeah. indication. Speaking of turned on, because that, that's a 60s terminology, meaning things sure, I like, sure. right? I understand. Clear. It also yeah. means get a boner, but you know. <laughs> but uh, I heard some indication that it might be the first time it was used in that in that way, like in a song. Mm. So could be. But, you know, one of the things they talk about, I, I didn't love, this isn't my favorite song, but I think it is a good example of weirdness hidden underneath the bubble gum, which I do think is kind of, what the what the Beach Boys at least part of what they're about, uh, certainly in this era. I should mention that this is the Beach Boys playing their instruments. So meaning this is Dennis on drums, Brian on harpsichord, you know. And but one of the things they talked about in terms of subject matter switches, and not just for the Beach Boys, but it's it still seemed kind of new at least for American music. Maybe less so for the British stuff that was coming out. It's more future oriented. It's talking about the uncertain future of what happens next. And for the Beach Boys in particular, it's a love song where he actively questions if his love will continue. So I'm, I'm, this feels like par for the course in 2024 now, but right. will I love my wife for the rest of my life felt like a subversive comment in the 60s. Well, and I'm sure his new wife loved to hear that. Like, wait, we just got married like six months ago and you're writing a song about like, ah, you know, again. Releasing. releasing. Yeah, releasing a single. Uh, but again, perfected on Pet Sounds. I may not always love you, but as long as there are stars above, it's a more mature way to think about it. Like, I might not always love you like this, but... I would be remiss if I did not take this opportunity to plug the mega, mega hit, I Don't Want to Get Married Anymore. Which just... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, how did that go over in the household? It was... was, was, We'll talk about it offline. For our new... For our, our our listeners, Phil has an original band. We'll include the song on the playlist, yeah. the associated playlist. 
Uh, it's a great tune. Go listen to it. That's listen what Phil's to, talking listen about. Listen to songwriter Phil giving his wife ammunition for all future arguments. Yes. <laughs> in real time. So I like how, and and I divorce like, proceedings. Yeah. Yes. I like how you said that people come up to you all the time and are like, that's my favorite one. And it's Dude, always I, older married okay, guys. Well, not, now, we're, yeah, now we're on a different topic. But yes, the, the first several times I played that song in public, a male I had never talked to would... Tell me how much he identified with that song. <laughs> <laughs> You're well, singing my life, man. But that's my point. It's sort of par for the course as a topic or as a position to take in a modern song. But I think it was a little odd at the time. And I wanted to mention, too, that, again, through these sessions, they're fighting, and I mean literally arguing in real time, with their father, Murray, who isn't really even supposed to be there, but they don't quite know how to stand up to them him or specifically Brian doesn't. And so this was probably the writing was probably influenced by Murray, the dad who was constantly challenging Brian's manhood in front of the other guys. Oh, wow. So not a nice guy. Yeah. Like, yeah, you were the when high school quarterback, up, but you were kind of a shitty one. So, you know, right. <laughs> never good enough. Okay. Let's move it along now to the next song on our focus list. This one's called help me Rhonda. She put me down, I bet I'd do it in my head Come in late at night and in the morning I just lay in bed Ron, you look so fine look so And fun. I wouldn't take much time for you to Liked it so much they recorded it twice. Well, good move for them, right? <laughs> yes. Okay. So there's, is there a different version? Because this is. one sounded completely different than the one that I've known my entire life. And better. Yeah. This one sounds better. You think? I think this one sounds better. Yes. I kind of okay. like this one better too. Yeah. I see some of the good choices they made on the new one, but I think overall this one reads better although there are some there are some exceptions to that rule the fake fade out is complete trash what was that about i thought that was an error <laughs> Which one? Which one of the fake fade outs? There's two of them. Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I thought there was a problem with the with mastering the tape. or something. Right. Yeah, totally. I literally switched so headphones. I was like, I'm on Bluetooth headphones. This is probably not the way they to go. They must be dying. Right in. Yeah. No, no. I don't understand that one at I'm glad all. Glad you guys said that. Yeah. yeah. So this is the kid. This is the booty call one, right, Phil? 
Yeah, so like I just right, let me hear I, I had never really looked at it this way, but I mean if you look at the first verse, he says, like, you know, I haven't been able to get this other girl out of my head, you know, late at night or early in the morning. So I think that's pretty easy to read. And then he's like, Yo, Rhonda, you look good. You know, you could get her off my mind. And then he just asks Rhonda for help for the rest of the song. He doesn't promise <laughs> yeah. her anything, he doesn't offer yeah. her nothing. He's basically like, I'm lonely. Could you you're hot enough? Could you just like let's do it? Yeah. I need and help. Yeah. No promises for you, but like, what are you doing right now? No, that's that's definitely what it's about. I agree. That's not an interpretation. He's begging a girl he just met to sleep with him to help him get over his ex. Recently married, Brian Wilson, by the way. <laughs> but back to the well, this is it. <laughs> Brian Wilson did did write this. It's true. But Al Jardine is on the lead vocal, and uh, Brian said he wanted to specifically. That's one of the things I was surprised by. Is they kind of democratically distribute lead vocals. It seems like based on. I want to say range, but I I can't really tell the difference between other than Brian's range between Al Jardine, like Dennis Wilson sings the very first song, Do You Want to Dance? And Mike Love sings a bunch of tunes as well. So I don't know. They seem to kind of distribute those lead vocals pretty freely, which is kind of interesting. It, it, it does seem like they have a a way of distributing the songs where where they're they're sort of they, like they do seem to work for the singer, right? Like there's one on here that's definitely sung by the same dude who sings "God Only Knows." It kind of has a "God Only Knows" vibe, and you can already sense how his voice sort of sits in that particular pocket. Yeah, no, I agree. So. So let's speak about the two recordings. So they did re-record this. They released this on this record, but I guess they felt like it needed to be a little bit better. So they re-recorded it within a few months, and that's the one that went to number one. Now, okay. to be honest, they're pretty close in terms of arrangements. The second one uses guitar instead of ukulele in the opening. It's a little more bass forward, and they also fleshed out. The, the biggest difference that I could kind of call to memory was help me get her out of my heart. Bow, 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 bow. The the bows are not in this original version. Yeah, here. a little doo-wop thing in there. I noticed that there is where there would be a solo in this version, they just run through the chord pattern. In the re-recorded one, there's like a little kind of pentatonic guitar mm. noodle that kind of pushes it along. So that's when I when I heard this one, it felt empty in that section where because they're just running the chords. Yeah, you want to hear something that'll just gross you out? Check out the 2021 stereo mix. You'll just be like, oh, oh my gosh. Just throw your headphones off. Adam, I was surprised. I was surprised you didn't know Brian Wilson was deaf in one ear, uh, and that's why all the Beach Boy stuff is mono, because he couldn't. No, I'm serious, because he couldn't tell the difference. Well, he also right. Phil Spector was also a mono guy, right? Ah, right. So I wanted to point out that when the second version of this, not the one we just listened to, came out, it knocked Ticket to Riot off the top of the charts. So that probably felt pretty. Damn. Good gangster right there but listen we haven't talked about the song i mean the melody is is good i think it's a catchy tune i like it it's definitely not my favorite tune but help me Rhonda is is an iconic hook line do you know what i mean i think it's a good example of pop songwriting overall it is but that that outro is too long the help me Rhonda, help help me Rhonda. they just kind of go through that it was on forever that to oh, death yeah. for a bit well they thought the the sliders going up and down would somehow fill the space fill the space in our hearts but it and just make it not. interesting it did not no and i i do have to say al jardine's voice is much less palatable 
than Brian Wilson's voice. Agreed. Yeah, he kind of sounds like he's shout singing at me the whole time, whereas Brian Wilson's like a beautiful voice. Al Jardine's kind of like, I'm just yelling at you. And you're like, oh, just calm it down, man. Like, I get it. <laughs> what did I write? I wrote something like that Brian, this listening this week and understanding who was on lead where for the first time really made me realize that Brian has the most compelling voice by far and that the other guys all sound like extras from Greece when they're singing lead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Picturing a guy crouched down near the hood of a car. Tell me yeah. more. Tell me right. more. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, this is the Wrecking Crew on both versions of the instrumentation, interestingly. But again, Wrecking Crew wasn't a very specific band. It was kind of people coming in and out who just happened to work together a lot and were the L.A. area session killers, right? It's like a short list. Yeah. Exactly. To hear it from like the Wrecking Crew documentary, they would just get the call. Yeah, be like, hey, we got sure. a session tomorrow. You want to come? I'm like, yeah, sure. I'm free. Let's do it. You know, yeah, you're the number one on my list. We got a number two and a number three bass player. So you know, if you're not if you're not down, it's cool. Exactly. Okay, let's move on to the next track. She knows me so well. <laughs> I was a little conflicted on the subject matter of this song. My first listen through, I was like, I can totally get down with this. It's basically like, oh, my woman sees through my shit, which I I got down with that. I was like, I was, I don't know, maybe it's, I'm just beating myself up, but I'm in the mental space of like, I know my wife just sees through my bullshit and like knows me well enough that all the, you know, the, the BS that I throw out there it's transparent to her. But then I kind of started getting the sense that this was like, oh, I treat my woman like shit, but she knows I love her. And that was a much less charitable interpretation. I think probably <laughs> what the real lyrics meant, you know. I found it very threatening. It came off like, I can look at other women, but if you look at a guy, just know that I'm going to go beat the shit out of him and it'll be your fault. Yeah. And then and then you probably. And then yeah, potentially you, yeah. Well, in that sense it did call to mind another uh, domestic violence classic which is Run for Your Life for, by John yeah, Lennon. Which also was also on Rubber Soul, right? Which came out right, the same yeah. year. Yeah. So it was it was They're the competing. time. Yeah. The, the domestic violence hits. Um yeah, he sounds like a really bad boyfriend. I I totally agree, yeah, Tom. Right. That's my read of the yeah. to- I don't like the topic of the song very much, but I do th- it's, it is my favorite track. I think it's a great showcase for Brian Wilson's lead vocal. He, the way he slides in and out of that falsetto is astounding. He's such a good singer. Especially as I was listening to the focus list on repeat, because it was coming right after Help Me Rhonda. And I was like, oh my God, thank God Brian Wilson's voice is out front. And it's out front. I feel yeah. like a lot of times there's so much vocals going on that. <clears throat> 
you can't necessarily it, there's not a whole lot of naked one guy's voice out front and there's naked Brian Wilson voice out front and it sounds so damn good it really does sound fantastic you know what's interesting on this this one as well is I, I feel like this is one where you hear the Beach Boys harmony in the background right with, with, with Wilson out in front but you also hear the melding of brothers right like you sort of hear that like their voices almost sound like an overdub of brian multiple times like they their voices sound similar you start to hear it here in a way that like is very cool and And they just got al jardine and they're going yeah (laughs) (laughs) wait hold on i want to i want to come on top of uh Phil, Phil's sincere note about brotherhood. Uh, speaking of brothers merging, I have an anecdote here. So Mike Love has an unacknowledged love child born right around this time in 66. And then much later in the early 80s, uh, much later, but not enough later, in the early 80s, Dennis <laughs> takes this girl in ostensibly because he feels bad for her that Mike Love won't acknowledge her. He then marries oh, her no, no. in 1983. Oh, She's 17. By the way, is he like 37 at that point? Dennis then becomes bandmate Mike Love's son-in-law as well as his first cousin, Boosh. <laughs> oh my god, Christ. that's insane! Oh, so, god. yeah, okay. So this is wow. his niece or first cousin once removed. Is that how that first works? Cousin once first removed, cousin correct. once removed that he then marries. When she's 17, and he is, I, I don't have the age here, but like in his late 30s. Yeah. In the to, 80s. Yep. That's, that's pretty gross. Yeah. Yeah. Now, But if she looks at another guy, he's going to fucking kill her. <laughs> right. <part. laughs> I was going to say, there is a happy ending. Dennis Wilson died of drowning later that year. So. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh she's sitting God, on the side dude. like, yeah, you got this. Oh, yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> You're a strong oh, swimmer. Shit. You surf, right? So, so you're I'm, cool. I'm next to Ken, right? <laughs> you're good. Yeah, yeah you go surfing a lot. Yeah. <laughs> God, there go those harmonies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh I wanted to mention, too, though, on the She Knows Me So Well, there's a high-pitched percussive sound right in the opening. It's somebody hitting a mic stand with a screwdriver. Mm, that pleasant sound. It's very <laughs> post rock. <laughs> So, you know, experimental, to say the least. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, this song really didn't do a ton for me. I felt like it was a medley of all the other songs on this album. It just kind of sounded like a nondescript Beach Boys song. Yes, I think Brian Wilson's voice sounds fantastic, but nothing really like cut through from a maybe a, a song structure standpoint. There's a guitar solo, right? There was, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a little bit out of the formula. That did, yeah, yeah, you're right. Like, let's break the formula. Let's put in a guitar solo. Like, you know, good for them. It, I, it caught me off guard, definitely. I th- yeah, I think what I'm saying I like about it is that the lead vocal melody has the most interesting piece to follow for me. Whereas a lot of times they write a really simple melody and then they put so much harmonization Slather on it to make it, it interesting. Right. So to me, this like stands out as something you could maybe sing on an acoustic guitar, and it would still be kind of cool. But oh uh, yeah, okay. But just just my two cents. But okay, we can move on to the next song, which is called "Please Let Me Wonder." <laughs> This would have been worth waiting for 
you can almost sing the other Beach Boy song. Well, it's been building up inside of me for, oh, I don't... That's what I thought, that this was actually that song until I went and looked at the track listing. I was like, oh, it's a different song. So that kind of set me off kilter to start. I don't know what song you're talking about. Is there a Don't Worry Baby. Sorry. Don't Worry Baby. That's Uh, the one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this has a really classic pop sound, pop song sound. It's his tribute to Phil Spector. It's also supposedly the first track Brian Wilson wrote under the influence of marijuana or, you know, drugs of any kind, but marijuana. But it does kind of blend together with a lot of other stuff of this type. Yeah, I think in in sounding classic, what I really mean is it sounds like other stuff. There is a lot of cool instrumentation here. I think there's a timpani, there's acoustic mixed with electric guitars, which was still relatively new and interesting. There was there's a vibraphone. You know, he's doing some cool stuff. Well, you definitely, like, you have, again, like, you have the Pet Sounds building blocks, big time, right? The timpani being a big one, right? And there's there's something about this 12-string guitar where it's like, it's, I don't know, it almost sounds like it's, they're trying to do a chorus effect, which, like, doesn't even exist yet. But, like, he knows it's, he knows it's, it's what it, you know, he knows what's going to happen if you tune the strings just a little out, you know? Like, and it's, it's, yeah, especially in the intro, I think the guitar is really interesting sounding. I will give some credit to the bass. This is Carol Kay on the bass. And I know that this is an old argument we haven't talked about in a while, but she has a very nice thick pick sound on her bass. It's yeah. very percussive and doom. But it sounds nice and low. It might have been doubled because I also know that she is incredibly precise. She's the kind of person who could double a bass line and you're not going to hear a whole lot of errant notes going on in there. And just on that note, Rob, you talked about doubling before. Mm -hmm. It has a crazy effect for anybody who has not been in the studio or wants to go into the studio at some point and they are recording something. Doubling things, it just adds so much more volume to it it's almost like instead of being additive it's like multiplicative it's not two plus two it's you know two times two which is also four but which still. is also four <laughs> but you know what i mean it's like it's a bad two squared wait that's also yeah. four well um, i think i think what's significant about doubling right maybe this will help put it in people's minds is if i just sing a track once and then i copy and paste it in a digital workstation it will be literally exactly the same. And so you won't you will not get anything additive when you hear it back. It'll be there'll be no effect there. But if you yeah. record it again, even if you do it very accurately, there will just be these very very subtle differences that will enhance and thicken up everything. And that goes for instruments and voices as well. Yeah. Because everything is basically just a vibration, and so the vibrations are never going to quite line up, and so there's a little bit of the chaos of the vibrations working against each other that, again, then make them sound a lot thicker. It's a great technique, and I highly recommend it. I don't think any of the songs that I've ever sang on, that I've ever made it to on any album, have just my voice not doubled, because it sounds thin as shit if it's not doubled. 
I'm so glad we got Tom on tape saying everything's a vibration. Yeah, it is. It is. No. <laughs> now I can start my Tom's meditation YouTube channel. Yeah, exactly. Cool. What's going to be really interesting is that after the recording where I go back and double all of my parts here, it's going to be really interesting to see how the vibrations You're going to really understand what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of a good example. I think John Lennon almost 100% of the time doubled his lead vocals. So anything, yeah, right. any later Beatles or John Lennon solo, if you're listening to his voice, you're listening to two of him. Oh, you know what's a good one is uh, there's a Billy Joel song. It might be like Big Shot or Still Rock and Roll to me, where the, the double comes in and out as like an effect. What's the matter with yeah, the clothes like, I'm yeah. wearing? Yeah. So like, yep. it's like, that's a good example because you can hear it really clearly. Phil outs yeah. himself as a Billy Joel fan. Nice to see. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't no shame. Hey, it's your Ain't life. no shame. Go yeah. ahead with your own life. It's fine. <laughs> I would like to say that I, I think that my favorite part of this song is that little 15-second passage that starts right at 155, where you normally would get a guitar solo or something, and it's just kind of this little melodic passage. And I really like it a lot, and I found on re-listens, I appreciated the restraint that went into that, and it still felt additive. Restraint is not a word I would typically use for this group or this producer, but yeah, yeah that yeah. that was an exercise in restraint. That's that's true. It's a little breath of fresh air. Well, fifteen seconds. Uh, Tom, I, I I see your point. It's almost like there should be a solo instrument over it, but there isn't. Yeah, right. Or like it's a whatever. Thirty voices, seventeen voices. Yeah. Okay, let's round it out and talk about the last song on our focus list. It's called "Kiss Me, Baby." biggest letdown because the first six seconds is just that lower two part and i'm like oh they're not gonna face fuck me with beach boys <laughs> army <laughs> and then 12 seconds in it's just like the the high nine comes in the brian wilson part and it's like oh no it's just another beach boys harmony okay i thought they were gonna do something a little different I had one note on the song. It just said, I'm exhausted. Which is, yeah. <laughs> that's my only that's, takeaway. 
that's kind of that's kind of how I feel too. I don't think it's the actual, but it's a low point of sorts because I felt like it was the cheesiest overuse of harmony on the record. The kiss a little bit, fight a little bit, kiss a little bit, fight a little bit. It just had me kind of groaning. And by this point in the record, and listen, I know there's a lot of people out there who just freaking worship at the altar of all the Beach Boys and what they do. They they're objectively well produced. I get it, but there is something like like you just said, Tom. There is a lack of restraint that really gets tiring, and that's a lot. To, these this is a short album, and these are short songs, and yet you're still tired by the end of it. That's saying something. It's like classical music. It's like dense, you know. It's very and, dense. This has an English horn and a French horn. Good, good. Glad we needed them both. <laughs> War of the Roses with horns. That's nice. So yeah, it's a historical reference I don't have there. I think that the War of the Roses was an inter-English war. By the way, we're Americans. We don't know this shit. Oh wait, wait, yeah, good, good job, Tom, to correct yourself before those emails were fired off. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I mean, just to give Brian Wilson credit, though, like I think what he's doing throughout this record, and this is another example, he's bringing in instruments that aren't typically in pop music. And he deserves some credit for that. So, for instance, he's using this thing called temple blocks, which are like traditional tribal wood blocks with slits cut in them. Uh, I think they're from East Asia or something, but that's that's featured prominently on this song. It has to be the first time they were on a pop song, you know? Right. Yeah. And Fish also has the first time that a vacuum cleaner was played on an album. That doesn't really make it good. <laughs> uh, you brought up Fish now, Tom. I think uh, Phil's still smarting. <laughs> Oh man, guys, I really was trying to leave it out. I really was. But for those who are still listening, I I, I just give me a second. Give me a second to, to compose myself. Okay. All right. So, so first of all, I, I wasn't I wasn't at Gamehenge, for those who care. I wasn't at the Gamehenge show. And I would like to say I'm sorry to you guys because if you know if I if I can't lead you there why like Rob you really the most like you probably would have most enjoyed it and like without my leadership like this was on me this is on me so I you know just gotta learn a lesson like it's just over and I'll never be there (laughs) right you're saying you should have uh, read the tea leaves and predicted that 10,000 shows after the last game hinge they were going to... I don't know. I, honestly, I, I don't know what I'm saying. I'm saying I missed it, and I have to live with that, and uh, I'm sorry. Okay. Well, with that, I think we've talked plenty about the Beach Boys today. It's time for the most exciting part of the podcast where we all vote on whether or not you really needed to hear this album before you died. And I'm going to throw it first to Tom. Man, don't go to me first. Come on. I am conflicted on it. I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. There's no pet sounds. Listen to pet sounds. You don't have to listen to this. There might be some cultural reason why this really moved the ball forward, but it escapes me. And seeing as pet sounds came out a scant like 18 months later, I think you can just listen to pet sounds and be good with that. So it's a no from me. Adam, what say you? Yeah, I'm. I was struggling a bit too, but as I look at the discography of the Beach Boys on Wikipedia right now, I feel like Tom, to your point, it's got to be Pet Sounds. If it's going to be another album, make it their first album so that you see a progression. Because this album is like almost 
pet sounds, which just doesn't quite rise to the level of must hear for me. So I'm actually going to say no, which is kind of a knife in my own heart because I love harmonies more than <laughs> most things in the world. So I'm, I'm struggling and I'm hurting right now, but it's a no. I think the Beach Boys fans would say that that's like saying that Rubber Soul is almost Revolver. <laughs> Or something like that. I don't yeah, agree. I don't yeah. agree, but I, yeah. I'm just pointing out that there is a, there's going to be a contingent out there that's going to feel that way. Okay, Phil, what, what say you? Yeah, uh, shockingly, I find myself al- aligned with with Tom and and Adam on this, specifically in that you know it, it's not quite Pet Sounds yet, yet it's also not the early Beach Boys. Um, it finds itself in a weird in between, but it's gorgeous. And I hate to say, you know, basically no to the Beach Boys. I do think it highlights the, you know, the the era of making music in America. I guess highlights the difference between the Beach Boys and the Beatles, right? Which is the Beach Boys work. Even if you compare them to the period the Beatles releasing stuff, they released literally twice as many records. They released like sixteen or seventeen records from sixty two to seventy, right? Where the Beatles have like eight. Right. Something like that. It's all packed in. So the catalog feels a lot different. It makes the great Beach Boys record a little harder to find. So I am voting no for Beach Boys today. Oh, man. I'm a little surprised that it went this way. And I am tempted to shout into the darkness and vote yes, just so the Beach Boys don't get a unanimous no. But I have to vote my heart which is no, you do not need to listen to this one. Listen, I really enjoyed learning more about the Beach Boys, about why this record was a departure for them away from simple pop music about surfing and cars, how it brought in extra instruments and instrumentation, but it's not different enough from the other stuff. I think that we avoided the Beatles comparison for a lot of this time because I think it's a completely losing game for the Beach Boys on sure. so many levels. But one thing about the Beatles is they don't have one definitive sound. That's their thing, right? They have multiple sounds that they were really good at. The Beach Boys, unfortunately, seem like they lock, they they pioneered one sound, and I think that means they deserve one record on this list. And Dimery put three on there, of which this is one. So, sorry. Beach Boys. Of which this is the earliest one, too, by the way. Because the other one's 71 Surf's Up. Correct. You're still Mm. doing a surf album, what, nine years after you put out Surf and Safari? I think the Surf's Up record is intended to be a a reference to those uh, Halcyon days uh, in a tongue-in-cheek way. And also some kind of spiritual successor to Pet Sounds after Smile didn't come out. But anyway, perhaps we'll get to that on a later episode but it's a no unanimous no for the beach boys i mean this might have to be the best sounding record that we've given a unanimous no to right absolutely yeah i I feel regret already but yeah because the truth is there's nothing wrong with this feel free to put this on if you have the time (laughs) i just don't think it's necessary yeah so uh, unfortunately it now joins the ranks of uh fun loving criminals and (laughs) kid rock uh, in our unanimous no category, which seems a little overly harsh, I will agree, <laughs> but it's still the right vote. Hey, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> Glad we all agree on that. Thanks for sticking with us, dear listeners. Okay, let's dip our hand next into the old mailbag before we go and talk about our listening homework for next week. I have the mailbag here. And what I have first is a letter from Simon 
from Corsica, which he calls the Isle of Beauty off the coast of southern coast of France. He says, wow. I, I discovered your show this year and I'm addicted. I work alone as a baker in a wooden shack under a mountain. <laughs> so, sounds like a fish song already. <laughs> and I'm often blasting the show at 4 a.m. and usually get through two or three back episodes while I'm catching up. I think of a random number, then play the show, which can be challenging. Anyway, my question for you is if you guys were in a band doing completely different style of music to your preference currently, what would be the fantasy name of the band? Ooh. He signs it Boosh. <laughs> big part of the reason I included his missive. <laughs> I have oh, a great answer for this, guys. I have a great answer for this. Okay. Uh, so I'll give you a second to think about your answer. If I was starting a fantasy project, I've recently been fantasizing about the idea of starting a tribute band called Taylor Spliff, where all of the <laughs> music is hardcore dub reggae, but all of the lyrics are identical to Taylor Swift songs. So like all the girls can sing along to the Taylor lines, identically hardcore dub reggae behind it. Taylor Spliff. I don't think it's going to get better than that, guys. Let's leave it there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's good. <laughs> okay. I got one more here. Alan from London writes, Hi, guys. Completely obsessed with your podcast. It's been a constant companion throughout the winter months. I tell friends about it all the time. With that in mind, I delved into your soft sell episode with fear and anxiety at what you do to one of my most loved albums of all time. And I must say, you did not disappoint. <laughs> I alternated between tears of pain and tears of laughter, no tears of rage though, at your thorough dismantling of the soundtrack of my youth. Another fantastic podcast, even though it left me a blubbering wreck by the end. Now, <laughs> you asked people to write to you about Say Hello, Wave Goodbye. One thing I would say about the strength and resonance of the song is the skillfully coded nature of the relationship between the characters in the lyrics. I think this has contributed to its longevity and why it strikes a chord with so many people. I know you guys like a bit of context, and the episode made a lot of reference to Soft Cell as a synth-pop duo, but Soft Cell were actually hugely subversive at the time, and were seen as agents of mischief within the commercial pop culture. So, for example, Sex Dwarf is obviously hilarious, but it was also a gleefully self-destructive demolition of their own career. Freaking out the squares, as you might say. <laughs> ah, <laughs> nice. Keep up the good work, you heartless bastards. I look forward to many more episodes of your outstanding show, Boosh. Awesome. I hope that wow. the Corsican baker understands that World Hopper Rob is going to show up someday at your bakery <laughs> and uh, you know demand some free bread or something like that. Yeah, I think I'm on my way to Corsican now, and I need bread. I'm hungry for bread, baby. <laughs> if you want to write us about any little thing, the favorite album of yours that we unfairly slandered or maligned, or just give us an attaboy or tell us about your the, the nuances of your strange life on an island, please do that at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail. We'd love to hear from you. And now we're going to throw it over to Tom, who has the Albinator, and is going to tell us what we shall be listening to next week. Thank you very much. I have the Albinator. It has been in seclusion 
in its room with all the lights turned off and an obscure early Charles Manson demo tape playing on repeat, <laughs> just the bridge for the last seven hours. <laughs> it's a psyops thing. I didn't even get to talk about the Charles Manson stuff. That's all, uh, yeah. So we have two me. other opportunities, apparently, to get I to know, there you go. I know. All right, so I am going to spin that wheel and tell us what we will be listening to next week. Without any further ado, drum roll, please, we will be listening to... The album is called The Pleasure Principle, and the artist is Gary Newman. I have no idea what this is. No idea. Cars. Cars. That's uh, the song. Yeah, yeah. In Cars. This is classic, yeah. Oh, da-dum, that da-dum. song. Yeah. Oh. All right. That's not the Cars? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this is like a really big like mainstream synthesizer moment, but I could be wrong. All right. Yeah. Well, we well, handled out. Soft Cell with a plume and daintiness, so I'm sure <laughs> yes. this is going to go over well. <laughs> Okay, well, that's exciting. Listen to Gary Newman's The Pleasure Principle and tune in with us again next week. We, we love you and we appreciate you for sticking with us. And we will talk to you again next week for 1001 Album Complaints. I've been Rob. I've been Tom. I'm Adam. And I'm Phil. Boosh. We're going to dub in like 17 more booshes over top of that. Boo!